Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loken Bird Show. We're back. Yeah, we'll see how long. Hopefully, for a bit. I am not, not going anywhere. Traveling for, well, the foreseeable next few weeks. Yeah, so you know, you you have to figure out what to do with yourself since you're not going anywhere. I am not <clears throat> looking forward to having to like figure that out. It was so much fun to like actually get out and go to do go to places, see people, do things. I did all the nouns. All the nouns, huh? I did people, places, and things. In that order or a different order? Well, possibly different order. Mm. <laughs> Okay. I went to places, I saw people, I did things. Okay, because that, that would have been better than seeing things and doing people. That would have been odd. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is a different podcast <laughs> and one we don't host. So from a Formula One perspective, completely different direction here. Than my so, travel schedule? Well, no. I, you, I was looking at some of the statistics, and I don't have them up in front of me this year. But, you know, one of the things that was pointed out in the last couple of weeks is that Sochi was Lewis's first victory in like 11 races. Mm-hmm. It's been a long stretch. And yet he was leading the championship. Correct. And where that got me thinking was think back to 2016. That was when uh, Rosberg won the championship. Right. And for most of that season, Rosberg didn't have more wins than Lewis. Correct. What was the big question everybody asked through the last half of that season? Did Rosberg win that season or did Lewis lose it? No. It was whether or not Rosberg was a deserving champion. Because he hadn't won more races. Well, but that... But, but the big question wasn't whether or not Lewis had lost it. Everybody was asking was, was Rosberg a deserving champion? Okay. That was the specific question. Okay. Which is a very different question than whether or not Lewis lost it. Okay. And what I couldn't help but wonder, looking at the stats and looking at the number of races Max has won compared to Lewis this season and the number of laps Max has led compared to Lewis this season. Why we're not hearing the same questions about Lewis? Because Lewis has won seven world championships. But still, all things being equal, looking at the stats from 16... And the stats now, the driver that won the most races up until today was not leading the champion. Now, granted, the championship is a lot closer than it was in 16 at this point. But the driver that won the most races was not leading the championship. And folks are not asking that question. Okay, But I see some fundamental differences. Okay. Number one, in 2016, we were dealing with a multiple-time world champion up against a guy who, while an accomplished racer in his own right, 
had not even been winning races until the new evolution of the Mercedes engine. So the question really started, and I know you see them as different questions, but it really did start with, was Rosberg really deserving of the seat? And was he good enough to be in that seat? That I don't think was the question. He, he wasn't a world champion. You know, Lewis has already paid those dues. Like, he doesn't have to win the most races. He has to win the most points. But he doesn't have to win the most races in a season because math does work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, for everybody to know, he's an amazing driver. Yeah. Rosberg was mathematically in that spot where he was ahead in the championship but didn't have all of the wins that Lewis had. And I think that that's also historic too. You know, you're looking at it also, yes, it's the season. We're looking at it historically across careers too when they talk about does somebody deserve it. I think they're not asking those questions because when Lewis is ahead in the championship, it's an assumed normality right now. And if Max, and you know, the pendulum swung the other way, now Max is ahead in the championship. And it's it's the swinging of this pendulum back and forth and the fact that it is so tight in points, I don't think people are really looking at the number of race wins. I mean, we're talking, they went into today two points apart. They did. And, and in 16, I think at the end of the season... Rosberg won one more race than Lewis at the, by the end of the season. Mm-hmm. But it took a bit to get there. I, I think it's, honestly, I think what's driving it more than anything else is less what you're saying and more the fact that Nico Rosberg didn't have the fan base that either Lewis or Max have. So he wasn't popular. <clears throat> mm-hmm. He wasn't as popular. And those strong fan bases, those passionate fan bases, shut that argument down. Well, and that's, you may have a valid point there. I mean, I think they're all valid points, honestly. Well, except for the one of that, whether it was Nico Rosberg in 2016 or Lewis Hamilton now that because they don't have the most wins, they wouldn't be a deserving championship. That is not a valid argument. We said it back then, and I say it now, too. Well, yeah. I I, I mean, I, I just... Because we dismissed it in 2016, I didn't even think that it would be a conversation we would be having in 2021. I just see it as, you know, we have a very similar situation five years later of, you know... The, the driver who was leading the championship was not the one with the most wins again. And I thought it was interesting that those comments didn't return. <clears throat> I don't think that anybody, a fan of Lewis's or not, could say with a straight face that for whatever period of time he was leading the championship by however margin he had that he was not a deserving champion you 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 don't get to that point in their career 
They shouldn't. And be able to say that with a straight face. I think you could have said it a little bit more. And the fan base has something to do with it. But I think you could, if you look, take in the depth and breadth of the Lewis versus Nico career differences. Keep in mind, they're similar aged people. They carted against each yeah. other. They had incredibly similar career tracks. And it's almost like you're looking at today, it's the fight between the old guard and the new guard because Max is so much younger than Lewis. Mm-hmm. But then it was talking about a rivalry that started in carts. And we saw it play out on the F1 track over a couple of years because when Lewis came to Mercedes, that rivalry came back. They were now in the same car and and that car was on top. And 2016 was sort of the pinnacle of that because it was the first time that what you saw was a driver that had mastered the car struggle and the, the one he had beaten so many times and so handily for so long. So we had set up at least two years prior to that. Well, we we had seen that relationship sour over the course of three years. Right. Because there was a lot of talk from the moment that Lewis had signed at Mercedes until about, what, three, four races into the 2013 season about how good friends Lewis and Nico were. Mm-hmm. And how close they were, and how well they got along, and how was this going to impact, you know, how they interacted with each other, and how they worked, and all of that stuff. And by the end of 2013, when all of a sudden Lewis was doing better, and in 2013 wasn't a, cha- a year they won the championship, but Lewis was doing better, and Nico was being asked by Ross Braun to give up places to Lewis, that's when things started to turn. Yep. But what we had been, the storyline that we had all bought into during those first couple of years, and Lewis was out on top, was when push comes to shove, Nico blinks, and Lewis doesn't. Mm-hmm. And we all bought into that soap opera. We, we bought into that story, that narrative that got woven through. So when you get to 2016, and you see Lewis take a stumble, and a lot of the the loss of points that he had were strategy calls by his team yeah. or uh, reliability, or or reliability ability issues. issues. So, the, and that that's an important note, but we bought into the narrative. We had those issues come up in 2016. And all of a sudden, the one that it was always on the short side of that s- stick is now ahead in the championship. And it's like that, that word deserving, well... You couldn't put it together before. You're not as good as him because we know that. We've seen it long enough to say you're not as good. But had it not been for all of these other things, well, that starts setting up that conversation of a deserving champion. The the one thing that I could see happening, because you know they, they they've tried to play this games this game before, and honestly, even if. Max isn't playing mind games. And yeah, I think Max at this point is starting to play his own level of mind games. And that's why he's not jumping up and down every win and every podium and stuff like that. This is his own Mm -hmm. psychological warfare. But 
Red Bull themselves and Christian Horner and Helmut Marco themselves are not above trying to play their own level of mind games with Mercedes and with Lewis. And I could see that <clears throat> if there is another coming together or two, t- one or more opportunities where those two come together and Max comes out on the losing end yet again, mm-hmm. I could see Red Bull starting to turn that of Lewis of not being a, a deserving champion. I mean, they've already played the he's a dirty driver. Mm-hmm. I, I, I could see them trying to pull that card too. Well, that I wouldn't be surprised on. But <clears> I think <throat> we have to watch how the narrative plays out. Um, so we shall see. But fortunately, nobody is stupid enough to have that conversation of whether or not he's a deserving champion. Yet. We'll see. So news that came out while we were gone. Um, and as expected, Formula One has con- confirmed the Cutter GP will be on the calendar. It will fill the vacant slot in the uh, calendar in November as part of a triple header with Mexico and Brazil. Uh, the race will be held at the Sal International Circuit uh, and will take place from the weekend of the 19th to the 21st of November. However, what most of the coverage didn't pick up on is that this is not a single race deal. Oh. Yeah. And it was one of those things I was like, when I went doing the research and gathering up the stories, I went, wait a minute, everybody missed this. It's actually a long-term deal. Now, Cutter will not be on the calendar for 2022, but from 2023 on, in a 10-year deal, there will be a Qatari Grand Prix. Oh, interesting. Now, what is not confirmed at this point is where the location will be. Um, There are talks that the uh, government wants to actually develop a new circuit. So the LaSalle circuit is, yes, it's FIA grade one certified, um, but MotoGP uses it. So they're, they're talking about possibly developing another circuit for Formula One. Now, obviously, that work would have to be done kind of quickly. Please, Mr. Toki, <laughs> don't design it. <laughs> you want Alexander Vert's to, to... I definitely want a Vert's track. I want a Vert's track. That would be the thing, is does Alexander Vert's company have a contract with Formula One? I don't know that they do. Well, since we don't see them ever being on the list or we don't talk about though their tracks being used i can't imagine but oh how i would love former formula one driver you know new track awesome idea but tilkey not you so the reason why there won't be a race in 2022 is because 2022 is the next world cup which will be hosted in Qatar. Oh, so they've got they've got their max fill right. of, and and I if, if I remember correctly, this is kind of a really controversial decision to host the World Cup in Qatar in 2022, because if I remember correctly, the original plans for the World Cup in Qatar was supposed to be over the summer, and Qatar's a desert. Oh, yeah, you you see the issue there. 
obviously <clears throat> they have a lot of oil money and they will be air conditioning their desert. Well, that was the the things that folks were talking about when this deal was signed years ago. Because I think that deal has been in place for like 10 years of what is everybody thinking that you're going to go and host the World Cup in the summer in a desert country. And there was a lot of talk of, well, some of it is going to be we're going to build air-conditioned stadiums and indoor stadiums. But they were also claiming that they thought that they would be able to develop some some other kind of revolutionary technology in the ongoing 10 years that would allow them to be able to do this without, oh, soccer players or football players spontaneously combusting in the middle of a game. Well, I mean, I'm just suggesting because... They'll, they'll do it at night. They'll no. hold them at night. They'll hold them at night. <laughs> no, but football does not have rain delays you play in the rain so sprinklers oh (laughs) to our listening audience that can't see i'm watching the face go where is she going (laughs) with that one like i can't imagine where that is going because a desert no rain no sprinklers bernie is advising by the way it's what i heard oh is, is that what it is yeah I heard he's getting in on the advising of how to right. air condition the desert. Couple of 80-year-old asthmatics with straws standing up in the bleachers going... <laughs> Sprinklers. <laughs> air conditioning. It's yeah. got to be cold air. Anyway, in other news. So remember last show we talked about how Martin Whitmarsh had been signed as the new group head... Mm-hmm. for performance at Aston Martin and he was essentially Otmar Safnauer's boss. Yes. Um and we were wondering what this meant for Otmar. So Otmar said he is clarified now. He said the F1 side will remain under my leadership and remit. So I'll still be the team principal and CEO. Martin will be the group CEO with this F1 side reporting through him. So I guess the only thing that hasn't been planned is how much of his time, because he's got the entire group to see spent on each one of those entities. I would imagine at the beginning, most of his time will be spent growing the Aston Martin performance technologies area, which is where his most recent expertise lies, and not focus so much on F1. But the bit that hasn't been planned is how much of his time will be spent where. So he thinks that Martin's going to be too busy doing other stuff to focus on the Formula One side. See, Otmar's got a buddy in one of the other divisions that's going to create <clears throat> dumpster fires during the F1 season so Martin can't watch Otmar. Is that it? Well, that was what Otmar's assistant told me when I tried to call and get a statement from Otmar. His, his buddy over in Aston Martin McLaren, or Aston Martin Performance Systems, is just going to be standing there going, Martin, over here, over here. Over here. Yeah. No, no, no. Don't look over there. Over here. Over here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, pretty much. Yeah. They, got a, they got a game plan because, you know, when the F1 season gets really crazy, the performance division is going to, like, gear up with all the problems for Martin. And then when F1 season winds down, then, and the performance season, performance department needs a little bit of break of the Martin eyes, Otmar is going to go in and say, we need to renegotiate a bunch of contracts. Oh, is that it? So it's going to work. Okay. Um, So in other news, it turns out that 
before they could travel to the race, uh, the medical car team of Alan Vandermerver and Dr. Ian Roberts um, tested positive for COVID. And as a result, they did not travel to the Grand Prix and are uh, quarantining, they're self-quarantining in their homes. Oh, wow. So it sounds like they were asymptomatic. They just tested positive. But, you know, once you test positive, you're kind of out of luck there. So subs were called in. Who are the subs? <clears throat> so it was... Oh, I just lost it. Um, the FIA Formula E World Championship safety car driver, Bruno Carrera, and medical delegate, Dr. Bruno... Bruno Franceschini. Oh, so the Brunos. Yeah. Bruno Carrera and Bruno Franceschini. They just are collectively referred to as the The Brunos. Brunos. Yeah. I don't know them, so so I can't comment on them. I mean, mean, we haven't had any experience with them. They didn't Um, get needed during the race. And that's important. They, They like to not have to work. That is kind of the goal of this team. Yeah. And it's a positive when they don't work. Right. The most overqualified, underworked team in F1. That's their new tag. I just made it up. Got it. All right. Um, This weekend, during free practice one, uh, several drivers, I believe it was five of them. Yeah, five drivers tested new gloves from four different suppliers. Um, this new specification of glove, they have not been approved as of yet, but they're supposed to be more flame retardant. Oh. Um, so providing better protection to the driver's hands. Um, this is work that was specifically done in light of last year's uh, crash that Roman Grosjean had um, because his hands were burned. It ultimately, um, I don't remember if it was, I don't think the, I think the gloves melted. Mm-hmm. to some extent and burned his hands is what it was right and if we <clears throat> recall back to when we talked about that uh accident they had increased that year fire rating on the suits and the socks and the mm-hmm. shoes and their underwear and everything but the gloves had not been increased because of a, a gripability yeah it's a dexterity issue. issue. It's a dexterity issue so you know a car hadn't caught on fire in a long time. So I get that that was, you know, now it's time that they have to make mm-hmm. sure that the gloves are at the same level. The great thing about, if you can point to a positive in the Grosjean crash, is that the only place that he suffered burns was on his hands. Yeah. And that's incredible when you think about it. So bringing the gloves up to the same fire protection as the rest of the clothing is absolutely the most logical next step. And, you know, speaking of Roman Grosjean, did not mention this in our last show. Um, he is headed to a new IndyCar team next year. Oh. He's joining the Andretti team. Oh. Yeah. So when I stock <clears throat> Roman, it could be in the hospitality tent? Possibly. We'd have to talk to our friends about that. Okay. Nobody tell them that I stalk drivers because I might not get invited. True. But we would have to talk to them about, you know, what can you do to get us some one-on-one time with Roman? Oh, that would be so, so awesome. 
I mean, they didn't get us one-on-one time with Alexander Rossi. We didn't ask. Keep that in mind, too. Okay, there is a point there. I mean, we did we did <clears throat> offer gifts this time. So maybe if we True. keep the gifts up, we there will get there eventually. There you go. We got to work on this. Um, so, yeah, the thing that, th- that they were really trying to test with these gloves, obviously, in free practice, you're not testing the heat resistance capabilities of the gloves. It was truly to make sure that, you know, dexterity and tactile feel was not compromised with this new specification of gloves. Well, exactly. Because if we think about it, the most common use, almost the opposite of the medical team, the most common use of the gloves is during the race, the the driving portion. So you need them to work for the driving. Yeah. As a supplement to that, you need them to also protect from fire, which is the least likely thing that's going to happen to them. You hope. You hope, but you sure want them there when you can. Yeah. So essentially, just like the medical team, an overqualified oh, and underutilized it? talent for the gloves. Is that it? Um, but the drivers got special dispensation from the FIA to run the gloves. Oh, okay. And, you know, you, you have to do that because... They're not the, the, Yeah, it's homologated safety equipment that's supposed to be in place, so you got to get special permission. So that was issued for free practice one. Have not heard any feedback from anybody as to what this looks like. Have you reached out to any of your buddies on the teams? Haven't had a chance. Okay. They, they were busy this weekend. Strategy was kind of crazy. You know, yeah, tied true. everything up, so, you know. That's true. Did you notice the special paint job and jumpsuits over at Red Bull? I... That made it really hard to pick out the cars from the Alpha Tori. Um, I did notice the special livery. Um, I disliked the special livery. <laughs> so the, this was supposed to have been run if there was a Japanese Grand Prix. Mm. There was not a Japanese. But this was their Red Bull's nod to... Honda, and their thanks to Honda that they did this. Um, that was one of the reasons. So the Japanese that was on the car, and I don't know if you saw it, was on the side, and also on, underneath the tail wing, on the back end of the tail wing, um, said in Japanese, Arigato. Ah. Um, but that was Red Bull's nod to Honda. because I mean, let's face it. Red Bull had more success with Honda in the turbo hybrid era than they did with Renault. True. And we thought Red Bull was nuts going to Honda. True. And they may be about to win a championship. Also true. But they probably won't win a Constructors' Championship. with. We'll talk about that in a bit. Math. Because that's the other thing that, to think about here. Math. Um, But Red Bull and Honda explained what the partnership was going to look like going forward. Oh, they've got their roles and responsibilities defined. Essentially. So what they what Red Bull said was that the diversification agreement that they have in place will see the Red Bull group of companies and Honda work together on a variety of motorsports activities encompassing the transition of power unit development from Honda to Red Bull powertrains young driver development, marketing and branding initiatives, as well as competitive activity across a range of motorsport disciplines. In F1, Red Bull powertrains will have the right to use Honda intellectual property relating to the power unit from 2022. 
Honda will support Red Bull powertrains through the assembly of power units and provision of trackside engineering support and race operation assistance in 2012, which basically sounds like, or excuse me, not in 2012, in 2022, which basically sounds like nothing's changing next year. Yeah, it does. Except they're going to rebadge it, not a Honda, right? Well, essentially... I mean, Honda's still building it. It's still Honda intellectual property. And Honda's still providing the engineering support and the race operation assistance. Now, what... Does this sound like the final years of their Renault deal when they had the Tag Heuer engine? Kind of. (laughs) Um, Now, what Red Bull says is that in 2023... Red Bull Powertrain will take responsible for all manufacturing and servicing of Red Bull Racing and Scuderia Alpha Tauri's engines. Additionally, to ensure team continuity, there will be a transfer of Honda Racing Development UK employees to Red Bull Powertrains. Okay, so they're assuming the division. Yeah. So you'll no longer... In 2023... You don't work for Honda, you work for Red Bull now. Right. So they're taking a year to do all of the personnel changes and change the payroll system and Mm -hmm. buy new business cards for a bunch of people and change their... Move the tooling out of the Honda plant to the Red Bull plant because Red Bull is building a plant. We know this. So yeah, they've got... got They're going through a transition year. Mm. So... That's what what is going on with that. Honda has also said that they do not plan to participate in um, the new engine formula when it comes in 2026. Okay. At least for right now. Now, the other rumor is that they have come to... That Formula One has come to an agreement around the 2026 engine formula... That has Audi and Porsche interested in entering as engine constructors. Oh, that's interesting. Not as race teams, as constructors from from a team perspective, just as engine suppliers. That's very interesting, but who would pick them up? That's the question. I mean... Somebody would have to make the move to do the shift. Yeah. That would be a, a big question because we've got so many teams that are now sponsored by car companies, if you think about it, and they've all got historic ties to other things. So, you know, is is Alpha really going to give up a Ferrari engine? Well, we'll talk about Alpha in a bit. Now, why that could... The thing is, I, I, I don't necessarily see that triggering them to move away from Ferrari, mm-hmm. given how close the ties are. But we'll, we'll talk about Alpha in a bit. I, I can't see Haas making a move because they're so reliant on everything else that Ferrari provides them. So... But Haas could be an interesting mark for a new engine manufacturer. If they, they sell could, out. If they could provide a bunch of mm-hmm. the products. I mean, you could look at like an Aston... Maybe moving away from Mercedes, but... Aston won't do that, though, because historically, it's Mercedes engines that go in Aston Martins. 
And that's that's my point. So yeah, so so they, that's not gonna gonna fly, and I, I can't imagine that Zach Brown is gonna be willing to move away from Mercedes engines, considering how much of a disaster it was for them to go to Honda. Well, I, I think that there's that piece, and then Red Bull's not gonna take it on because they're building their own factory. I mean, you don't build yep. that and then wait for it. So it's the question of who's got. Who's got the room? Who's going to mm-hmm. bring that in? I mean, I can't imagine Alpine would do it. Well, they're not because they've got their own plan. Exactly. You know, they've got Endstone. Exactly. If anything, I would think Alpine's going to be looking for a client. Mm-hmm. So now you've got two engine people, a new engine person that's unproven, mm-hmm. Alpine that doesn't have anybody buying their engines from them in the market. It's... Kind of a mess. Yeah. So, speaking of engines, mm-hmm. as you will recall, going into this week, well, go. I think it was after the practice session started, Mercedes announced that Lewis Hamilton was getting a new engine and he was only taking a 10-place grid penalty. Right, which seemed very odd. So, what Mercedes elected to do is unlike when, well, basically every other team, and unlike what they did with both times with Valtteri, instead of replacing the entire power unit, the MGUK, the MGUH, and the engine, the internal combustion engine, all they replaced for Lewis was the internal combustion engine. Oh. They left all the other components in place. So it was really a partial engine change right and by just replacing the internal combustion engine that's what triggered a 10 place grid penalty okay so according to Toto Wolf the reason why Mercedes did this is because they didn't believe that there was a performance or reliability gain to be had by changing out the remaining components I call bull oh I don't believe it not only do I not believe it, but I think strategically they made the call at the wrong time. And this, I think, could be a lot of their undoing for the remainder of the season here. So what I think they're actually playing with is let's replace as little as we can, take as small a penalty as we can, and if it looks like we need to do anything else, or they may just decide they're going to do it anyway, they're going to, at Austin and the following races, they'll replace the remaining components and take smaller penalties and spread it out over multiple races as opposed to what everybody else, what even they did with Valtteri and what everybody else has done. Of We're just going to take this hit in one big shot and be done with it. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah, it could be if they if they do it. I mean, I can see the value in if you didn't have to change everything, could you take a series of smaller penalties with the idea of moving up through the grid is not an overwhelming task. You keep them in the points. The, the problem that we have seen, though, with Mercedes in particular is that 
once they catch up to the McLarens and once they catch up to the Ferraris and once they catch up to the Red Bulls, it ain't so easy to get past them. I know. And they run out of laps before they can pull it off. And we've seen it time and time again. So why turn around and and handicap yourself over multiple races when you can just rip off the Band-Aid, get it done, have the damage happen in one race? Let's see. It could be genius. I mean, honestly, this could be a hero or zero move. I think it's a zero move. And I think it's a zero move for two reasons. One, you look at Sochi and you look at, yes, Lewis won the race. That's awesome. But where the, it was a situation where Mercedes really needed to capitalize on those points. And they needed to come in and, and widen that gap as much as possible. And they should have had a fantastic opportunity to do that with Max starting at the back. And where did he finish that race? Second. Yep. I know. And the fact that Max was able to go that far, I think that should be a massive warning. As much as, yes, it was a win for Mercedes, that should be a massive warning sign for Mercedes that um, they're not in as good a position as they think they are. I don't have, I don't believe for a second that Mercedes thinks that they're in a good position. I really don't. I think they are grasping at strategic straws right now. But I, I think the other thing that we saw this weekend, and, and I didn't want to get too deep into the drive yet, but we, we will. I, I think the other thing that we saw this weekend is both Red Bull and Max realizing that the only thing that matters at this point is that Max finishes in front of Lewis. It doesn't matter where Max is in the grid mm-hmm. as long as he's in front of Lewis. And I think that's why... Where I expected that Max was going to leap out at the start and fight for, with Valtteri and get past him fairly quickly, what I think actually Max realized and Red Bull realized is that if you can't jump Valtteri right at the start, don't bother trying. Yeah. I get it. And that's all Max needs to do for the rest of the season. And that can completely change the equation right there. It can. So, moving on. Because the race. Mm-hmm. Well, at least run up to the race. So, recognizing last year, as you all recall, um, Istanbul was slippy. <laughs> I think the very, stat very, was very slippy. five spins by Botas during the race last year. Oh, easily. I, I mean... E- Everybody struggled for traction. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, you know, what we realized had happened in Istanbul last year was like a week or two before the race, they repaved track. Right. Completely repaved the track. Um, and then we had a wet race. So all of the oil and stuff and the smooth surface, it just turned into an ice skating. And the problem is Istanbul Park doesn't host a lot of other events through the year. Even this year hasn't hosted a lot of events. Recognizing that they had a potential problem, the owners of Istanbul Park went and water blasted the track this past year. Yes. To try and rough it up and to rinse away a lot of the oils and, and, and all of those problems. And 
the Friday practices, which, by the way, were dry. <laughs> everyone said that the the track is a hundred percent opposite what it was last year. It's pro it was probably the grippiest track they'd driven on all season. Oh wow! And it was fantastic. And then it rains on Saturday, and it rains on Sunday. And guess what? Once again, we have a super slippy track. <laughs> And not just a super slippy track, but a super slippy track that you start off on inters and you just burn them out until there's no tread left on them and treat them like slicks. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And the pictures that we've seen of um, the tires. Yes. They truly were burned down in the contact areas to smooth. They were. They became slicks, which is exactly what happened last year. And how Lewis won the race last year. And, you know, while I'm talking about tires, I should also mention our album art for this week. Oh. So what our album art is, is, and and they started this this year, and it's actually, I think it's kind of cool, of the pole winner, the pole sitter, the fat, actually I should say the fastest driver in, in qualifying. In Q3. Okay. Gets, and it's a wind tunnel tire. It's a Pirelli wind tunnel tire that's engraved that it's the the, the pole position award um, with F1. And it actually did go to Valtteri because Valtteri got pole thanks to Lewis's penalty. But I guess initially, I don't know if initially it was presented to Lewis. Somehow Lewis got his hands on it. Well, it was handed to Lewis as part of the qualifying ceremony uh, because he qualified the fastest and they didn't they don't apply the penalties until after qualifying. So as of the end of qualifying, Lewis is sitting on quote provisional pole. And the driver who gets the this they autograph it on the spot. Right. So, so Lewis did. Lewis autographed it. To Valtteri. Enjoy my pole trophy. Nice lap, though. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like a guy with a good sense of humor. Hopefully, Valtteri thought it was funny, too. I think he did. (laughs) I mean, he knows he inherited pole, but it's what you do with it. I mean, keep in mind, Valtteri won the race. so He did, and he won it handily, and, and like I said. And deserved it. Yes, he did deserve it, but I think a lot of it was also that Max knew he he didn't need to win the race. Right. Now, when it comes to, and I don't know where in your list, because we hadn't talked about when we were talking about this constructor math. Can we talk about constructor math right sure. now? Um, when it comes to constructor math, Verstappen and his buddy Perez need to start winning some races. They're going to need some points because here's the thing. Hamilton may not be winning, but Hamilton and Botas are combined having more points than Red Bull by a lot. But the thing is, and, and, and this goes back to what I was talking about of if this is actually true, and I don't know if we'll ever hear it during this year, but if it's actually true that the instructions to Max at this point are Whatever you do, just finish in front of Lewis. Don't worry about the rest. That would say that 
Red Bull has decided that they're going to throw everything into the driver's championship and not into the constructor's championship. And I could see them doing that because, you know, if you're Helmut Marco and you're Christian Horner and you're Dietrich Manischitz, you know that the key to your future success with this team is keeping Max happy and making sure that Max wants to stay with the team. And by turning around and throwing everything into the effort to get Max a driver's championship, even if it means sacrificing constructors, that's a pretty surefire way to keep Max with the team and make sure that you're not going to lose him and he's not going to get lured away by... Toto Wolf going, hey, Lewis is retiring, or Ferrari picking up the phone and going, yeah, we think it's time. Can you want to join it? You know, that's how you get Max to stop, start ignoring those calls because Max is winning championships and Max is leading, and he knows that he has the full force of the team to make sure that he is standing on the podium over anything else. You have a point. I think that if the instructions to Max is stay in front of Lewis, mm-hmm. then the instruction to Perez is going to be push Lewis back as far as possible. Push Botas back as far as possible. Oh, and, and it definitely it's is. Perez's job to create the spread. It's Max's job just to stay in front of him. It, and it that definitely is. And I think that the big thing that Red Bull has been able to draw some comfort in this year is that when... Perez has had the opportunity, he's more than willing to be the wingman. Oh, yeah. And he's more than willing to sacrifice his race for Max. Yeah, that makes, you know, that makes a good number too. Now, to that end, there was a four-corner pass attempt during this race. That That was was the only excitement in the entire dang but it was good. It was. Um, and to be very honest with you, I am extremely happy that the stewards kept their mouth shut and Michael Mossy didn't turn around and hand either either one of the drivers a penalty for Perez going over the white line at the pit lane. Yeah. And I... I we were both wondering whether or not they were actually going to do it, and I'm glad it didn't even come under investigation. Um, but given the stance that they have taken as of late, I wouldn't have been surprised if they did it, and I would have been pissed off if they did it. Yeah. So the other bit of an of an issue was Nikita Mazepin. He's always an issue. Yeah. It's Nikita. I'm an issue. Mazepin. <laughs> Um, and, and his sh- darting out onto the race line under blue flag conditions in front of Lewis yeah. and narrowly missing an incident. Mm-hmm. So according to Nikita, he blames the team. Oh. And it, I, I do think that it's plausible in this case. So he, what Nikita says is that... Um, it's something unique about Istanbul, and we've certainly seen it, is that not just is there spray, but the spray is dirt. 
is, is very dirty. There's a lot of grime. There's a lot of oils. There's a lot of other stuff in there. And when that spray kicks up, it goes in and covers the mirrors. So he had no visibility. He couldn't see what was coming behind him. And we know the visibility is poor, even if the mirrors are clear. But the other thing that did not happen was the team didn't warn him that Lewis was coming up and didn't tell him where Lewis was. He knew he was he had a blue flag, but he didn't know where another driver was. He couldn't see. Mm-hmm. And that's why he shot out. Um, he does acknowledge blame for the issue. He said that uh, he apologized to Lewis for it. So, I mean, I, I, I think we, we've made some progress there. You think his therapy sessions are working? Possibly. There was also... How much did that pain you to say in your out loud voice? Um, actually, I was kind of impressed to see that he came out and said it. Wow. There was You're also, softening in your old age. There was also an interesting picture that was making the rounds post-race. Um, somebody caught Fernando Alonso... Um, and making his apology to Pierre Gasly. It appeared to be fairly heartfelt Fernando was hugging Pierre. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, Pierre is French. Fernando is Spanish. They're a huggy culture. Oh, is that what it was? Yes. Very huggy culture. So as you can imagine, Lewis Hamilton, very frustrated by the no. strategy. Um, the only driver, by the way, who managed to make Ocon. it the whole race was Esteban Ocon. And when Lewis found out about it, he was shocked. That it was just Ocon? Well, that, that, Ocon that, anybody, that anybody managed to do it since he got pulled in. So he was surprised to hear that Ocon had did because he didn't think anybody had managed to. According to Alpine, they think he was one lap away from losing a tire. Oh. And I think one of the pictures I saw, there was a chunk out of one of the tires missing. Oh, talk about risky. Yeah. Um, But Lewis is fairly upset over the strategy. Um, He said, you know, the tires are bald, so you don't know how far they're going to go. And so there is definitely the worry of the life of the tire. But also, I wasn't really that fast at the end there. I was struggling at low grip, not sure why. Then all of a sudden, I have... Not such bad pace, but I was losing performance to the guys behind, which, you know, I question it. You say your pace wasn't that bad, but you were losing performance to the guys behind. Guess what? If you're losing to the guys behind, your performance isn't nearly as good as you think it is. Well, the it's, that, that's what happens. Okay. Um, but he said, I think probably in hindsight, I should have either stayed out or come in much earlier. Because when you come in with eight laps to go, you don't have time to go through the graining phase of tire on a drying track. So then I went through this whole sliding phase where I nearly lost four positions. A bit frustrating, but it is what it is. It felt good to be in third, and it was like, if I can just hold on to this, this is a great result from 11th. Fifth is worse, but it could be worse. Well, he's pulling out some philosophical moments towards the end. I know he's, I mean, he's an emotional guy, and you could hear it. But, yeah. You know, I think what was true, well, some of it was that when they tried to bring Lewis in earlier, he refused. Right. But the other thing is, I think Mercedes was really trying to hold out and to see if enough of a dry line would burn in to move to slicks. And yeah. it just didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I, that was that was the gamble they were trying to take. Yeah. So 
like we mentioned, Valtteri won the race, and there was an interesting stat that came up. Much better than the one that um, David Croft shared with us. Okay, so as a reminder, David Croft's stat, and I'm paraphrasing because it was convoluted at best, is essentially that the last time that somebody won a race from 11th, so looking at Lewis's potential from 11th to 1st, was 3,000 some few days ago, which was the exact same number as the previous, previous time Mm -hmm. that it had happened. Um, So that was, and then there were like the other number of times that it's happened that somebody has won a race from 11th to 1st. It was so convoluted. So much, much better stat here. Okay. So with Valtteri Bottas' victory today, that means this year there have been six different race winners. Okay. That is the highest number since 2012 in a single season. So in 2012, we had Button, Alonso, Rosberg, Vettel, Maldonado, Weber, Hamilton, and Räikkönen. So far this year, we've had Hamilton, Perez, Verstappen, Ocon, Ricardo, and Botas. And to think about it, if it, there wasn't that near miss in Russia, we'd actually be at seven this year because Norris almost won Russia. When did Gasly win? I didn't say Gasly, I said Perez. No. But didn't he win... Um, last year. Monza. Oh, it was last, last year, Monza. Okay. Last year, Monza. I got my years confused. <laughs> I got my years confused. It, essentially, since February of 2020, it's all been one year. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. So, as we are getting closer to the... At least the provisional release of the 2022 calendar. Supposedly this coming Friday we should see it. Okay. Um, Total Wolf is saying that uh, F1 should modify the rules to ensure that there is some kind of a staff rotation to ease pressure on the staff. I I actually agree with him on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it should be required that they rotate the staff so they don't burn people out. Because when people are exhausted or they're away from their families for too long, they're going to make mistakes and it's going to be dangerous. And particularly the mechanics and all the junior staff. You know, these are the folks that, you know, they don't, they don't just show up at the track three hours before and, and away they go and then leave a few hours later. They're talking 12 to, to 18 hour days for four or five days in a race week. And if a car is damaged, they could be 20-hour days. Right. And then you look at multiple triple headers going on. It, it's, I mean, yes, it's fantastic for us as fans. We, we get to see more racing, and that's always awesome. But for the folks who are responsible for making the races happen, it's kind of brutal. Well, if you think about it, I mean, we literally, as spectators do less work than the least working person on any staff because we show up essentially an hour before racing starts and we leave right around the time they start doing interviews. Sometimes we'll sit through the interviews depending on who's doing them. Yeah, but we don't get the post-race. We don't get any other stuff, so we don't watch that stuff. 
Right. But, you know, we talk about the drivers. They'll show up three hours before they need to be on track. They'll run around the track for a little bit, and then they'll, they'll take off. They're, yeah. You know, they're probably physically there the least amount of time than any of the other staff. Except for possibly the team principals. I don't know, because they might dictate some of the mechanic work. Depends on the principal. Yeah. But, yeah, for any given weekend, we work the least. We do. And so we should be caring about the people that work the most. And, you know, to be honest with you, from what I have heard about how Mercedes is run, it doesn't surprise me that it's Toto Wolf who's standing up and saying, you know, we can't just chew up our staff. And I've heard that Franz Toast, his feeling is the exact opposite. It's, well, if they don't like it, they can get out of Formula One, which I think is a really horrible way to approach this. Um, But it doesn't surprise me to hear that it's Toto Wolff who's standing up and saying, no, we have to take care of everybody on the team, not just the guys who get the, the dump trucks full of money. Well, yeah. But there is something to this request of of, uh, Wolf's. His philosophy and the way he's leading the team, nobody will be surprised if they have, you know, team A, team B, Mm -hmm. team C, that all work together. And, you know, they're a finely tuned machine within, you know, teams within teams, I guess would be the way to think about it, so that he can rotate his staff. Mm -hmm. But... You look at cross the grid. If they don't mandate staff rotation, you could also wind up with a team that says, we're only going to have one team within our team. And so the potential at that is a higher functioning because they only work together. You know, the, the more robotic yeah. concept is there. So in a way, if Toto's like instilling that they're going to do staff rotation, he's taking a bigger risk and what he's trying to do is mitigate that risk and say i believe this is the philosophy and i'm going to mitigate it across the entire thing except what i could see them doing what i could see mercedes doing is saying okay this triple header this is the 18 this next triple header that's when b is up instead of you know we've got the we're just going to rotate the guys who work on the left side of the car. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I believe firmly that Mercedes is going to create whole teams. Mm-hmm. It, let's pretend there's 16 people that have to go to be mechanics and but, pick But that, that still keeps that unit together and it allows them to, on off weeks, to continue to work together and drill together at the factory. Yes, but then also consider the cost cap. Because those were race personnel, and race personnel are going to come under it. So if you put two mechanic teams together... Well, that's why I think there's his push here of he wants it in the rules so that the cost cap can account for it. Yeah. I think that this is a, a move that, you know, this is what he sees is going to be best for Mercedes, and he wants all the other teams to do it so that it is not a burden for Mercedes versus a burden for no one else. Yeah. So, I think I mentioned this as a rumor a couple of weeks ago. It might have been in a show that didn't exist. Th- there's that possibility, too. There's, and, and honestly, 
hadn't put a whole lot of stock into this story up until this week. So starting to see more chatter and more reporting, including now Autosport picking. And admittedly, Autosport is not afraid to shy away from a juicy rumor. But more chatter and more talk that Michael Andretti and Andretti Autosport is looking and is in final stages of negotiations to purchase a controlling stake in Sauber. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Which, and, and, and Frederick Visser has come out and he said that, well, yeah, I'm the team principal and I'm the CEO, but this is regarding the ownership of the team and it does not involve me. And if it's going on, I'm not part of those discussions and I cannot comment on it. Which I thought was interesting. Wait a minute, you're the team CEO and you're not involved in ownership pieces here? What's And I, and I get that they are owned by an investment firm at this point and mm-hmm. the investment firm controls a lot of that, but it still seems odd that you're not involved at least to some extent. Now that said, if the rumors are playing out the way everyone says it is, that could have some influence as to why the second seat at Alpha has not been announced as of yet. So what the talk is, is not just the fact that, um, that Michael Andretti would be adding the team to their portfolio, which would include IndyCar, Indy Lights, IMSA, Formula E, Supercars, and Extreme E. But also... The talk is that um, this would give Andretti something to do with Colton Herta. Oh. The thought being that Andretti doesn't necessarily think that the peak of Colton's career is necessarily in IndyCar despite the fact that he has been extremely successful and is considered to be one of the promising Mm. drivers in IndyCar. Interesting. So the thought is that if Andretti bought the team, that second seat, if it didn't happen in 22, the thought is in 23, Mm. that second seat would go to Colton. Now the, 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 big issue there is that Colton doesn't have a super license and would need to finish high enough up in IndyCar to qualify him for that super license since he's not an F2. Right. But the other thing is if they could move Colton into Formula One, that clears up a bit of a logjam that Andretti also has. Granted, some of that is their own fault since they just brought in Roman. But they're also trying to figure out what to do with Kyle Kirkwood over in Lights, who's the Indy Lights champion this year. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, they've got too many butts and not enough seats, don't they? Uh-huh. So previously, Andretti had expressed interest in the past in joining Formula One only if he could run a, a customer car. However, with the cost cap and with some of the other rule changes that are going on, he thinks that it's a good opportunity to jump in now. And I will say this. If you're going to come into Formula One, 
at this point, buying a team, I think, makes better sense than going the Haas route. Nobody thinks that the way Haas did it was the right answer. Well, except I, I, I think in the short term, to get started and get moving, what Haas did, I think, was actually a really good idea. But it shouldn't have been something that that's your long-term permanent strategy. Well, I don't mean the buy everything from Ferrari plan. Okay. I mean, any any team that you go into, you could easily take an existing team and say, okay, we need to retool what we're dealing with. Let's mm-hmm. go partner with somebody and buy all their stuff. No, the, the fatal error I believe Haas made was by coming in as a brand spanking new team, they sat out of the prize money for three years. Well, there's that too. They they came in without the the pieces of the puzzle. Had they bought HRT or Caterham and come in Marusha. Marusha. Bought any of those to come in with an established team mm-hmm. even if you replaced everything and just brought the name you would have bypassed well you would have bypassed but, but the thing is, sucking wind for three years and, and admittedly Haas did some of it I think they bought Marusha's Banbury plant but the only reason why they got it is it happened to go on fire fire sale at the point that they were looking right so there was no guarantee when when the bid was approved that that plant would be available to them. Right. And that was the thing, is instead of turning around and going, hey, look, Marusha is gasping over there. Mm-hmm. Let's throw a couple of million pounds at it. They spent 14 times as much for less of a gain. Yeah. So that was the, that's my soapbox on why Haas did it wrong. So if Randretti's going to do it by doing it, coming in with a team and buying a team, that's awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Like I said, still some rumors as to what's going on, and it's possible that Alpha could sign, you know, it, it's still looking like Yanju is the, the leading candidate there because of the money, that they could sign him on a one-year deal with Andretti moving in and pushing to get Colton Hurd a, a super license for 23. It would be a transition year. Yes, rebuilding years, what you're thinking. It's um, rebuilding. It's rebuilding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of transition years going on right now in uh, Formula One. Um, Imola and the local government in the Emilia-Romana region, which is where the, remember, it was the F1 Gran Premio de Mali <laughs> in Emilia-Romana and Italy Grand Prix this year. Yes. Um, but the Emilia Romana region has approved funding for Imola and have guaranteed funding for Imola to return to the Formula One calendar on a long term basis. And that was one of their big holdups before is they couldn't get the, the government backing. And that was one of the risks that Monza had for a stretch. Mm-hmm. They were struggling to get that the local government backing to get them to pay the hosting fees. Right. Imola said, we've got it now. And Emilia Romana said, yep, we're, we're willing to put in something like 20 million euros to guarantee this. Um, however, it sounds like they have not been able to convince Formula One to give them a spot. It's because they have 23 races already on the calendar. And, and I think that's the question is could i give them some suggestions of races we could skip 
Paul Ricard? Yep. Right there. One for one trade-off. I I think that's fair. I, I still wonder as to whether or not Imola is still right for Formula One. Mm. I mean, yes, we've had some, some decent races thanks to some changeable conditions and some other stuff, but it's still a narrow track. Right. It It's still difficult to pass and and you know i think imola this year if i remember correctly it was fairly dull up until like the last 10 laps and then it got exciting well was more laps than were exciting in turkey true it was not an exciting race at all with three laps three three corners four corners four corners and in our last story there are changes coming to Austin ahead of the race. They're going to change the designer and Tilke isn't going to be the designer anymore? Actually, well, it, it's too late. He's already designed the track. And, and the reality is the design of the track, the physical layout of the track. I don't want to talk about the, the construction pieces and stuff like that. But the physical layout of the track and the course is actually a good layout. I mean, the, the drivers like it. We, we get some pretty good racing out of it. There's some good places to pass it. I can't complain about this, about Austin as a tilky drive. Okay. No, if if you remember, our last race that we had there in 2019, there were a lot of complaints about how bumpy the track surface had gotten. And Austin had done some work to try and smooth it out, but it was still pretty bad. Um, apparently the issue has not gone away. And as much as, yes, Formula One was not there this past year and IndyCar didn't go this year. They were there last year. Um, MotoGP was there and there were significant complaints about the race and at one point, or about the condition of the track, and at one point there was even talk of the drivers boycotting the race because it was that bad. Oh, wow. Um, now, the race was held. There was not a boycott. Um, there were no major incidents. However, some of the drivers did say that that, that was about at the, their, their physical limits to do that race because of how bad the bumps are. Um, so both the FIA and um, MotoGP, or excuse me, Formula One and MotoGP are pushing Austin to reprofile to resurface a large majority of the track to address how bumpy it is that's not something that can get done before the race what austin will be doing and they are working i guess the the representative who's down there inspecting the track for formula one and the fia is the former race director for indycar is they are going to grind down a lot of those bumps to try and smooth it out Oh, okay. So we're not changing the profile of the track. We're not changing the layout. But we are trying to make the track a bit more drivable. Well, and I'm glad to hear that we're not going to lay down fresh tarmac two weeks before we drive. Because we've tried that last year and it didn't go so well. Yeah. Well, you know, if you remember the first year that we were at Austin... There was a lot of talk about how fresh that tarmac was and how, and you know, we see this at every new track, and we're going to see it in uh, Saudi Arabia in a couple of weeks. 
you know, a lot of question about how smooth that track is and how much that impacts the grip that the cars have. And there was a lot of concern. What was it? The last two turns at Austin, those first couple of years Mm -hmm. because of how slippery it was. Or you remember when Sochi was new and their new asphalt was so kind to the tires that the, the, even the degrading tires didn't degrade. You mean like last year? At, at, I mean, it's every year at Sochi <laughs> up until last year. But you know, I mean, and, and we they talked, have the Cuddlebear asphalt there. I mean, I mean, we talked about it in, in, in our last show, and, and every year we go to Sochi. You know, Formula One turns around and says, "Oh, these the drivers can't push because the tires are too falling apart. They're not strong enough." So, and then we go to Sochi, and the drivers push, and we don't have any pit stops, and it's super boring and it's not exciting and yeah because the tires aren't degrading yeah are you not entertained we gave you what you asked for but what you asked for and what you really wanted were two different things and on that note we'll call it a show it's a show we are so glad you came bye bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay.